As physicians, we go to work every day, and then sometimes the tables get turned. What's it like when the physician becomes the patient? You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and with me today is Dr. John Mulligan, VP for EPMG, Emergency Physicians Medical Group, and a practicing ED physician. Dr. Mulligan, welcome to ReachMD, and thank you for agreeing to be on our show. Thanks, Shira. Great to be here. Can you tell our listeners how did this journey begin for you and how did you first know something was wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. It really just started with my normal daily activities and noticing that I was slowing down. I noticed that when I was climbing stairs, I was getting a little more winded. And my wife noticed that I didn't have the same stamina as I was running my errands around the house. And finally, things came to a head. I have four kids and I had climbed two flights of stairs in succession. Upon reaching the top of the stairs, I had gone to change one of my kids' diapers, and I just couldn't catch my breath. My wife just turned to me and said, this is not right. You're 46 years old. You should have better stamina than you have, and you need to get checked out. So at that point, I knew something was wrong. I did a cursory exam on myself, basically listening to my heart and lungs and assessing to see if anything was in pain or distress, and... I went through things as a physician, asking myself, you know, am I having pain? Am I having edema? Am I urinating? Everything seemed just fine. And at that point, I decided the best thing to do was to establish a relationship with a primary care physician. And I had to wait the obligatory three to four weeks as access to primary care physicians is limited. So I was told to wait about three weeks to establish that relationship with a new physician. So at that point in time, what were some of the thoughts going through your mind? Well, so that's, Exactly it. So these symptoms had developed over the course of, I'd say, two or three months. And at the time that I finally decided to see a physician, they had really come to a head. So as I mentioned earlier, it was around the holidays. It had snowed, and I was on my way into one of our emergency departments, and I was in my management role. So we had a meeting planned, and it had snowed. And I shovel our driveway, and as I was shoveling, preparing to leave the house early in the morning, I felt as though I was going to pass out. I just had this near-syncopal event. Being a physician and not knowing exactly what was going on, I was very frustrated. I received a phone call from the director of the emergency department as we were preparing for a meeting, and she wanted to review the agenda for that morning's meeting. And I was so frustrated that I told her, I said, I'm going straight to the emergency department and I'm getting a chest x-ray because I think I may have pneumonia. And she agreed and she actually met me in the emergency department as, as I arrived. And this was about two and a half weeks before my scheduled appointment with my primary care physician. So as an emergency physician, I found myself a patient in my own emergency department. But that's where the evaluation process began. And from that point forward, my life had changed. Who did you turn to for help? So in the emergency department, I identified the ongoing symptoms, and the physician knew that I traveled quite a bit, and she was concerned for a pulmonary embolism, and so she immediately wanted to move towards a CAT scan, as we in emergency medicine tend to do. And I was reluctant to head in that direction. She had identified that my oxygen level was a bit on the low side. I think my SATs were 91% on room air. 
My blood pressure was okay. I should let you know I had no medical problems established at that point. I was on no medications. As I mentioned, I was 46 years old, never smoked, didn't do drugs. I had a pretty uneventful life, and I actually had 15 years active duty military where I had only gotten out about 10 years prior, and I had a clean bill of health at the time of discharge. So with that as my background, for wanting to get a CAT scan struck me as a bit unusual. I thought chest x-ray looked okay. I was going to go back to work, and I would just await the evaluation by my primary care physician. We had a first discussion where she then reminded me that I was her patient and not her boss, and just to sit back, relax, and she was going to do her job. It was very difficult. And again, it's that having to relinquish control and just trust your environment. And she did a great job. She did, in fact, perform a CAT scan. She came back initially as we were looking for a blood clot, and she noted that there was no evidence of any pulmonary embolism. But she had some questions about an aneurysm that was identified on CT. Now, I should mention, just before she ordered the CAT scan, she had identified a, a blowing systolic murmur and I had noted that I had a, a murmur when I was in the military. I didn't hear anything that was tremendously appreciable when I examined myself. But at this point now, we had this CAT scan. And I was at that point identified to have a 7-centimeter thoracic aneurysm. And the annulus of my aortic valve was stretched. And that explained the murmur. And it explained my symptoms as I was essentially in heart failure. So at that point... We had a clear understanding as to what was causing my symptoms, and then the reality sunk in. And did you share any of this with your colleagues? So at the moment I was diagnosed, it was interesting because I'm surrounded by people I work with. And so the director of the department was a dear friend. The physicians and the nurses I work with on a regular basis. And so this was obviously an unusual diagnosis, and it involved someone they knew, and so I turned to the people I work with every day, and we began that, that process of accepting what I had. It was basically the novelty of learning that this is what you had, the seriousness of it. And then it started to weigh on me how really serious this was. And my first phone call out of the emergency department was to my wife. And that was a bit of an emotional call because I didn't know what the future held for me at that point. She knew there was something wrong as did I, but we didn't know what it was. And it was at that moment that I shared with her that I had this aneurysm and that I most likely was going to require surgery to fix it. Tell us about the experience of entering a major teaching hospital, but as a patient. Yeah, so that's really a fascinating aspect of the story. And so as a practicing physician, I was in a client hospital. And I should mention this is a hospital that's not in proximity to my home. I was about an hour and a half away from home. And so my wife and I had a long discussion about the diagnosis. And the decision was made at that point that I would stay in that hospital and meet with the cardiothoracic surgeon to review my options. As we did, and we discussed the various options and realized that there would be a recovery period in rehab, the thought was that I should probably be closer to home. And we started making phone calls to local centers looking for options, and Loyola was the closest. And so we made some phone calls, and at that point, we secured a transfer. However, they had no beds available, so I ended up spending some time in the client hospital. And it was while I was in their PCU awaiting transfer to the academic center in Chicago that I received a phone call from an old colleague of mine 
I did my residency at Hopkins, and he was a managing physician at Cleveland Clinic, and we were just old friends, and he called rather fortuitously, and I shared with him my situation. He immediately suggested that I go to the Cleveland Clinic, and I had not at that point considered any options outside of the Chicago area, and the more he spoke to me about what they do at the Cleveland Clinic and their expertise in this area, it prompted me to consult with friends in the internet and colleagues. And at that point, we made a decision to transfer my care to the Cleveland Clinic. So I'd also share with you that it was really a fascinating experience for me as a physician, because at that point, I was in my client hospital, and I knew the consulting physicians. And so the cardiothoracic surgeon that cared for me is actually a neighborhood friend, our kids play together, and we've known each other for a number of years. And he basically came in and gave me my treatment options. And at this point, the only option I really remember was he offered a bental procedure, which is basically like an on-block resection. They take out the aorta, the aortic root, and the aortic valve, and they replace it. And there's an option for either a mechanical or a biologic valve. At the time, the option that was presented to me was for a biologic valve. And the thought was that I was young and they didn't want to put me on Coumadin, but there was also concern that the lifespan on these valves is only about 10 to 15 years. And so this was the first major dilemma I faced in the medical decision-making process. And yet it was really the only option that was given to me. I just had to decide what type of valve I was going to opt for, but the type of surgery was not an option. I needed this bental procedure. So now as my care shifts to the Cleveland Clinic, I was made aware that I had many more options. Repair of just the aorta, replacement of the valve. Obviously, the aorta needs to be replaced, but not knowing the anatomy of my valve, there was some thought that I had a bicuspid valve, a congenital abnormality, but they couldn't confirm on echo. I did have an angiogram done, and the angiogram was no more helpful in determining the type of valve that I had. And so the one major distinction that the Cleveland Clinic offered me that I didn't seem to have locally was that they could repair my aortic valve in what's called a David procedure. And this would then afford me a lifelong repair with no need for anticoagulation or valve replacement. And this really was a game-changing option. And so what was really interesting for me as a physician was realizing at that point that there are treatment options out there that are available that we don't necessarily all know about, even within our own specialty or or field. Why that option wasn't made available to me is still perplexing, but it's clear that that was a game-changing option that then compelled me to transfer my care to the Cleveland Clinic. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Mulligan, Regional Vice President of EPMG and a practicing ED physician himself. So tell us, when you got to the Cleveland Clinic, was your family able to go with you? And what was it like for you entering such a mega center of academia? So it was quite an experience to be a patient than being transferred. As I mentioned, it was the winter. It had snowed the day before. 
My condition was such that they did not want to do this routinely. The aneurysm size was large enough that they felt that I should not be discharged and scheduled for repair, but transferred immediately. So I took a fixed-wing air transport to Cleveland, and this then posed challenges for me personally. I have four children. My wife is a practicing physician. I have no family in Cleveland. And I had no specific plans as I was being transferred to Cleveland other than to have this life-saving procedure performed. So we made arrangements with family to tend to my children. And my wife, who commercial, and met up with me in Cleveland. And my father, who resides in Pennsylvania, decided to join us as well. So they met with me in Cleveland as I arrived then and went through the preoperative evaluation. Did you feel you were being treated differently as a doctor-patient, or were you just the post-op in room 336B that has the gown that's open and back? So it was clear that they knew I was a physician. At one point, it was also made clear to me that I was receiving some additional attention as a result of my physician status. To a certain extent, that was rather nice. I don't know that there was a perceivable difference on my part at this point. I felt rather ill. I should let you know I had had an angiogram. I had had a CAT scan with contrast. And I was in class 4 heart failure. And so they were flooding me to protect my kidneys and yet diuresing me to protect my lungs. And I felt really miserable at this point. So the team at Cleveland Clinic was sensitive to this. I was placed in the ICU initially upon arrival, although... I really was clinically stable. I think it was just to then survey the landscape of my clinical situation. And then at that point, I was rapidly downgraded and placed in the PCU as I then went through a battery of preoperative tests. At that point, I felt as though I was receiving appropriate care, and yet it was somewhat tailored to me as a physician. And that I did appreciate. How did it go for you at the Cleveland Clinic, and how long were you there? So I was there for about four days preoperatively as they went through a very extensive evaluation, everything from carotid duplexes, echoes, dental exams, everything to really ensure that I was an appropriate candidate for surgery. And it was very reassuring to find out that everything was in good working order. And then it was interesting because, as you asked earlier, did I feel any special treatment as a physician? As the surgical team then introduced themselves, so I was initially evaluated and managed by the medical team as they were clearing me preoperatively. The surgical team then entered into the scene, and it was clear at that point that I was a patient. I met with my surgeon the evening before my scheduled surgery, so I met with him for the first time at about 7 o'clock in the evening, and I was the first case the following morning. And even though I am a practicing physician and I've been doing this for 20 years, I had a multitude of questions about the procedure and the recovery time. And I also had questions about my interoperative options, given the fact that there was no absolute assurance that they would be able to salvage my aortic valve. There was a chance I would require a replacement valve. And this was really a tense process for me as I was trying to decide as a 46-year-old, do I go with a mechanical valve and commit my life to Coumadin, 
or do I go with a biologic valve? And then assume the responsibility that I may end up requiring a subsequent surgery 10 to 15 years later. And it was frustrating as the surgeon presented himself and I presented these options that he really didn't have any sense of direction. He basically just said, you're a young guy, a mechanical valve is what would be recommended, but you're advanced enough in age that you can do either one. And he just reminded me that he had about a 70% chance of salvaging my valve and that it would be more likely that I wouldn't require anything. And with that, I tried to sleep the best I could that night before surgery. And obviously, the surgery went pretty well, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. So what were your remaining days in the Cleveland Clinic like? And what was the impact like on yourself and, of course, for your family? So the remaining days were really trying. First of all, the experience of surgery is surreal. You basically fall asleep and... You're amnestic to the entire event. There's no passage of time. I literally woke up and felt pain throughout my body. There's a description that many open-heart patients will refer to as being hit by a Mack truck, and that is very appropriate. I had a tube in my throat. You know, it was intubated, and I was restrained, and I was waking up and realizing that I really wanted that tube removed. And this is a really... I think important experience for me as a physician providing care to my patients to realize how troubling it is to have a ventilation tube when you're somewhat conscious. I was struggling to remove this tube and the staff was handling me the way it would handle any agitated patient. My wife was there to help talk me through things and they ultimately decided to remove the tube and then I felt much better. But again, the healing process was slow. I was very fatigued. I had three chest tubes. I had a swan gants in my neck, obviously tubes in every orifice, and this was a brand new experience for me. With that having been said, the care was very good, and I was pleased with the progress I made. I was walking by the end of the second day. I should say I got out of bed the second day. I was walking by the third day. And by my fourth day postoperatively, they were planning my discharge. I think that I had surgery on Monday, and I was discharged to a hotel in Cleveland on Friday. I thought that they were ambitious in their discharge planning, and yet at the time that I was discharged, I was very happy to be leaving. The Cleveland Clinic has things set up where there's a hotel on their campus, and I literally was wheeled from the hospital to the hotel, which was a very pleasant transition. I remained in Cleveland for about three days as I then had a post-op visit with a nurse practitioner who checked my wounds and some blood pressure checks, and I was released to head home, and I flew commercial to come home, and at that point I had to transfer my care to the physician that I never had a chance to meet before my surgery. What was it like for you when you returned to work, and how fast did you recover? So I took off four weeks. Four weeks was perfect for me. I started to get a little stir-crazy. So during the recovery period, I was extremely fatigued. It was very important. And everyone that I'd spoken to who had had open-heart surgery said the same thing, and that is take as much time as you need before returning to work. And for me, in my schedule, I think that was appropriate advice. But I also found that as I was getting myself into cardiac rehab and I found myself getting back in condition, back into life, that I was very anxious to get back to work. 
that was my sense of identity. It was my sense of purpose in terms of my role with the family. And it also got me back to that sense of normalcy that let me know that even though I'd been through this traumatic experience, that I could make a full recovery. And it was with great pride and excitement that I returned to work. That wasn't until I had to move the first patient with a hip dislocation. Is it fair to say that the experience had a lasting effect on the way you practice medicine? Well, it's really been profound. I think that there are two areas of my life that are primarily impacted by this experience. One is personally, and that is to be 46 years old and face something that is tremendously dangerous and life-threatening and to weather through that and to come back and have a normal prognosis on life is a tremendous gift. And so what it's allowed me to do is gain a deeper appreciation for my family and my personal life. And then that also transcends into my professional life, where it's equally important for me to recognize those elements in my coworkers' lives, that when they face these challenges, that they're given the ample opportunity to experience that aspect of life, that work is only one element. And so I'm just much more sensitive to the needs of my colleagues and my family as a result of this experience. What's the take-home lesson that you'd like us to share with physicians listening to this today, considering the fact that we tend to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week as though we are immortal? Twofold. One, listen to your patient. As they explain their symptoms, there may not always be a clear diagnosis, but they'll certainly have a reason for feeling the way they do. I'd go back and mention that when I had that chest x-ray done in the emergency department, it was completely normal. And it would have been very easy for a physician to take a look and say, look, you're having some trouble breathing, you've got a little bit of a heart murmur, but the chest x-ray is normal, there's not much else to do here. And I had a physician who was rather astute and attentive to what was going on, and she pursued the diagnosis and she saved my life. I think the other is making sure that you have an appreciation for how precious life is and how tenuous that balance is. And so making sure that we take time to enjoy what we have in life, how short it is, and to not be consumed by work and overlook our body and how it communicates with us or our surroundings. And we respond appropriately when called upon. John, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today and sharing this very personal experience. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson. To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. We encourage you to like, share, and comment on this episode. Thank you for listening to ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.